Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations this week, all focusing on the Journal of Hepatology paper titled Prospective Evaluation of the Prevalence of Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease and Steatohepatitis in a Large Middle-Aged U.S. Cohort. The first two conversations demonstrate that NAFLD and NASH prevalence in untested asymptomatic middle-aged patients may be far higher than we expect, and that in some populations, NAFLD incidence might exceed half of all asymptomatic people. With a sample of 664 patients, this is probably the largest prospective histological study of patients with no known liver disease existing today. This conversation presents an urgent call to action to prevent a NASH pandemic that can swamp healthcare systems, even in developed countries, even more than we are already predicting. So, prepare to have your eyes open and your mind stretched. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And, when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Dr. Naeem Alkuri and Dr. Samar Goria, as they discuss the article our three key opinion leaders authored recently on prevalence of NAFLD and NASH in an asymptomatic middle-aged U.S. population this week on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. We always think of, okay, NAFLD is very common, but it's only a small percentage that have the aggressive form of NASH. But this study shows that it's really not a small percentage. It's, you know, about one third of people with NAFLD. And again, these are people without any known uh, liver disease. So I think this has big implications for the entire, you know, NAFLD-NASH market, whether it's diagnostics or therapeutics. I don't know, Roger, what, what do you think in terms of therapeutics with these percentages of people with actually significant disease that may require medications? Well, first of all, let me, let me go back and play with the numbers a little bit. Stephen described what you're seeking as pure prevalence. I would call it primary prevalence because total prevalence is going to include people that you looked at, but also the methotrexate candidates that Louise mentioned, folks who have baffled, right, who, who drink a little more than the two or three drink limit, but where you couldn't define it as a purely alcoholic disease. So, Naeem, I think, and when you add that to your comment, you might be up in the range of 20% by the time you're done, really, that I've gnashed. The first time I ever looked at these numbers, I did a whole bunch of my own kind of secondary stuff using publicly available databases, put them together and guessed that the NASH percentage would be 10 to 12. And then I looked at the paper that was widely cited that said 3 to 5. And I think, Stephen, if I remember, I actually made a comment in 19 in front of all those people that I was going to use that number, but somehow I thought it was really low. I listened to this and it makes me feel worse for the patient population, but better in some ways for the consistency of the data. In that I said 3 to 5 didn't feel right to me in the first place. This this feels closer to right. So then to go to your question, I think it changes the dynamic of how people think about demand. That if you believe that you have a relatively small population and that you're not going to treat until later stage, 
that puts a certain amount of pressure on price to revenue, which is you have fewer patients, you need to you think you need to make X return, therefore you price higher. At least that's what tends to happen in pharmaceuticals in the States. That doesn't play real well in the rest of the world, but it does here. If you have more patients, then you might actually think about pricing lower because of the patient pool. The other point that's really striking to me, Stephen, I was playing with the numbers that you had. So you had 2.7% was Nash in the first study, 58 or 5.7 in the second study. People take a look and say, gee, that's 3%, but no, really is. It's really 140% increase in the number of patients who are exposed, which is a huge increase in exposed patients. Roger, this is Nash with F2 or higher. That's exactly right. By, by exposed, we mean immediately in need of treatment. So you've increased that pool even more than, you know, well, as I say, you go from 2.7 to 5.9. That's 130 or something like that percent increase in the number of patients that need to be treated. And and now that you have two time points, you can begin to map that what that would look like over time. So if you go from January 7 to March 2010 as one variable, so basically 20 up to 2010, you fast forward to 2018. So eight years, you see that degree of increase. What are the next eight years? When we look at this in 2026, what's that number going to be like? If that trend line continues, which essentially we can blame COVID for, again, worsening obesity, worsening diabetes, increased sedentary lifestyle, that's been going on for 15 months. Around the world, it's still a major issue. I suspect that trend line is going to continue. So it goes from 2.7 to 5.9 in eight years. Are we going to go from 5.9 to 9, 8, 9, 10% of advanced NASH in 2026? You can begin to speculate that that may happen. So Stephen, I think it's less likely to be a linear. I'm not sure exactly how it'll be different, but probably not linear. It might be more than that. It might be less than that. The interesting question to me is to look at the endangered populations. If 70% of your patients have NAFLD right now in a community, and pardon me for using an only here somewhere, only 30% of those turn out to have NASH right now, then you have a pool of 40% of patients who under the situation that Stevens described, which is what's happened, could get a lot worse in a hurry. And even 30 is pretty well epidemic, but you get higher than that, and you've got populations that have really a pandemic-level risk. So the communities that are less likely to be affected or that came through the COVID crisis relatively intact may not be as affected, Stephen, but the communities that were endangered in the first place, it's going to get a lot worse. And and there, I think we really need to jump on it. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. I just think when you have two time points like this, you can begin to, I, I don't want to just sit here and talk about the data today. I want to talk about where we're likely to go if we don't get after this and try to make a, a big fat dent in fatty liver disease, but also in the comorbidities that are linked to fatty liver. And when you look at what we've just come through and what we continue to live through, it doesn't appear that we're flattening the curve on obesity and diabetes. So almost assuredly, we're not flattening the curve on fatty liver. And my guess is we're not flattening the curve on NASH with advanced fibrosis either. So let me go to Baffled, right? Because one of the things we haven't flattened the curve on is alcohol. Alcohol sales in the U.S. were up 54% in the first six months of the pandemic. No reason to think they've gone down from there. So again, in the difference between primary prevalence, which is what you were looking at, and pure prevalence, which is everybody, those numbers are going to get worse. Can I just ask, you've got your two time points there. Was there an increase in prevalence within the Hispanic population 
or was that fairly stable? Were you able to identify population at increasing risk? Yeah, that's a great question, Louise. No, I don't have the original paper pulled up and broken down based on ethnicity, so I can't speak to that. I, my yes. recollection, it was it was pretty close. Stephen, can I make a comment on that without even seeing the data? So, Louise, the risk you're going to run with that number is you're only going to have 60, 70 Hispanic patients in the first cohort. The variability around those patients will be so great that it will drown the effect. You know, if you've got a plus minus 11 on a population and, and we think a three-point or five-point shift would be a big shift, we're just not going to see it. But thank you, Luis, for asking that question because, uh, you know, what we've shown in the current study is that 55 of middle-aged Hispanics have NAFLD and 24% have NASH. So in my mind, if you're a 50-year-old Hispanic without any other risk factors, you should be screened for NAFLD. I think that by itself is enough. If you have type 2 diabetes without looking at any other clinical variables, you should be screened for NAFLD. I mean, we've done it in hepatology and other diseases like chronic hepatitis B, where we screen all Asian Americans for hepatitis B in certain communities. And I really don't see a reason why we shouldn't say, hey, if you're 50 year old Hispanic, you need your colonoscopy, but you also need a non-invasive test to screen you for NAFLD. And we don't need to look at your liver enzymes. We don't need to look at your entire past medical history. Just the fact that you are Hispanic, because unfortunately, the burden of disease is definitely higher in this ethnicity. If we can get that message based on this paper, I think this would be very important for these communities. That's exactly the sort of point that I was trying to look at, because yes, we enrich hepatitis B population from Africa. We screen a lot earlier and different parameters. So any identification of at-risk groups with really high prevalence is excellent work. Hey, Louise, I was able to pull up the abstract from the Williams paper. So in the abstract, it's listed Hispanics NAFLD 58%. That's using Ridopro quadrant ultrasound, not MRI PDFF. It's close, 58% in the first paper, 55% in the current paper using MRI PDFF for NAFLD prevalence in Latino Hispanics. The prevalence of NASH by biopsy was right at 20% in the first paper, 24% in this paper, with a caveat that Roger mentioned there was only 40 NASH patients overall in the first paper. So the numbers get a little small, but the trend on NASH prevalence increasing is holding true for that population as well. And to go to Naeem's point, those are big stinking numbers. You don't need a lot of support from sophisticated statistics to say this is an issue that needs to get jumped on in its own right. I couldn't agree more with that. And, and Louise, I couldn't, for that reason, I think you didn't need the data to prove the point to your question, right? I, I, you're absolutely right. Speaking of this, my first patient for the afternoon showed up with decompensated NASH cirrhosis. This is a missed opportunity. So let me go take care of him. But thank you guys so much for having me. This was delightful. Thanks for joining us today. See you soon. So Samir and Stephen, let me ask you the question I was going to ask all three of you. What was the biggest surprise to you in this data as you started to bring it in and analyze it? I think there was lots of surprises, quite frankly. But the biggest surprise to me was the degree of moderate to severe NASH. So the paper I just pulled up, 5.9% of the general population having F2 or F3 fibrosis. And before you stop and say, well, gee whiz, that may or may not be a big number to me, 
Remember, these people all thought they had completely normal livers. None of them walked in thinking they had a liver problem. But yet, 6%, essentially, of my population of patients I saw at Brook Army, mean age 56, are walking around with NASH and moderate to severe liver disease. That's mind-boggling when you stop and think about the sheer numbers of people that, that are walking around thinking nothing is wrong with their liver, but yet they continue to eat tortillas, you know, potatoes, pasta, chips, soda, all all the things that drive lipotoxic fat. It's sobering, no pun intended there, when you think about those numbers on a global scale, not just on a, a United States population level. The, the one thing I wish we would have done that I've learned since we did the trial that I've become a big advocate for is really getting after defining the amount of omega-6 to omega-3 ratios that our patients are taking in. Because one thing I've learned with the pathogenesis of this disease is omega-6s, this is what vegetable oil and, and things of that nature, drive upregulation of the arachidonic acid cascade, which ultimately drives inflammatory mediators in NASH, which result in activation of stellate cells. And we're not ingesting enough omega-3s. And there were some recent guidelines on cardiovascular risk looking at omega-6 to omega-3 ratios. We actually need to flip the ratio in the United States. And the same thing could be said for India, for instance, where there's a higher prevalence of lean NASH. And there, they don't eat a lot of meat. So they're relatively choline deficient. Well, that's how we define NASH in a mouse model, is choline deficient animals that are fed high fat, high fructose, high cholesterol diets. So the Indian population eats a lot of rice. They use a lot of vegetable oil in their cooking. And again, choline deficient. So they're high omega-6, low omega-3s with choline deficiency. Again, driving that phenotype of NASH. So wish we would have collected that data. We didn't do it, but it is what it is. But Samer, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what surprised you. Yeah, I, I like the word you used, Stephen. Sobering were the findings, that's for sure. It's really a monumental challenge to, to deal with this epidemic. You know, I'm very happy to see the uptick of clinical trials we're all involved into to try to find effective and safe treatment for NASH. But really, the task is monumental and urgent, especially when you see high prevalence of NASH, fibrosing NASH, active NASH that is at risk for progression, it just makes the task of finding effective and safe therapeutics more urgent. And then the other point is the burden of clinically significant disease in certain populations, as we discussed, the diabetics, the Hispanics. Those are really sobering findings to me. Thanks, both. Louise, you have anything you want to add? No, the only thing that I was looking at is we know that a lot more gastric complaints with the diets that we have nowadays, and maybe we should be routinely fiber scanning and doing non-invasive in all endoscopy locations because they're fasted naturally to come in for these tests. I think there's been another study on the use of fiber scanning in endoscopy where I think 60% of the population with going for upper GIs who thought they had normal livers actually had fatty liver disease, but I can't remember the author. So I think if we're going to look for areas where we can coordinate care, reduce the number of tests and actually identify the biggest at-risk populations, then maybe path of least resistance is somewhere like endoscopy where people are waiting. They can have as many serial tests as possible but um, it's just opportunities that evidence like this again quantifies about how big the population is and yet we're still not routinely screening in large percentages of populations and yet the cost both to society and healthcare and life is so large we will wake up and smell the coffee I'm sure with all apologies because I don't have the luxury of being able to look for data while I'm while I've got this podcast up on my screen so I don't recall exactly where this number came from but I looked 
at a few things that suggested, apropos of the uh, median age, the average age of 56 in this population and where you chopped off the upper limit, that peak Nash NAFLD age is 65 to 74. That tends to be maybe 40% higher, 30, 40% higher than the age you would find in a 45 to 64 cohort. So if you think of where the older population is likely to land, the folks that you lopped off at the top end and then above that, these numbers might get even more troubling when you look to a 65 to 80-year-old population, even though I know that's not one of the major things for NASH that the logistic regression showed. So with that, thanks to, to Samir, Stephen, Louise, and Naeem. Excellent. I'll use the word again. Sobering conversation. But but I think really an important one and, and people need to be more thoughtful about and more consistent about. Last go-round, what's the one message you would like listeners to take away from this hour? And if there's a specific message that you would like either public health or the drug companies to take away, let's do that one also. Brave one, go first. So really, it's, it's a public health crisis that we're dealing with. We're beginning to see the effects of it on liver transplant utilization. Very quickly, over the past decade or two, uh, NAFL jumped to the top of the list for utilizing liver transplantation. Right now, it's the second leading indication for transplant in the U.S. Very soon, it will take over hepatitis C as the leading cause for liver transplantation. The health costs of NAFL are also on the rise, driven by increasing prevalence and, and uh, of both NAFLD and NASH. So really, you know, it needs a global effort, a national effort to, to do something that starts from prevention to screening and early identification of patients at risk and in peril to keep pushing hard on developing safe and effective therapeutics. Stephen? Yeah, I completely agree with your comments. It's hard to, to add much to that. I, I just think what this shows is is that we don't have a handle on this disease yet. We don't fully understand its epidemiology. We don't fully understand the natural history. We don't fully understand the pathogenesis. We don't have any FDA-approved treatment for it, but we know it's a big problem. Having said that, we're light years further down the path than we were when I started studying this disease back in the early 2000s, light years further along. So we've come a long way. We're on the cusp of having our potential first FDA-approved treatment for the disease. We're developing better and better non-invasive tests that can not only diagnose the at-risk NASH population, but then can also potentially monitor therapeutic efficacy and even predict long-term outcomes. So I don't want to be the negative Nelly with this. I do think we've come a long, long way. It just highlights the fact that time is of the essence. We need to act quickly. We need to get drugs on the market for these people. We need to finalize some of these non-invasive tests that we're working so diligently on. And maybe more than ever, we need to double down on our disease awareness campaign for the public, as well as our primary care physicians, our endocrinologists, and our gastroenterologists and hepatologist colleagues. You know, COVID's kind of got gotten the limelight recently and well-deserved. It, it needs a lot of attention. That's a global pandemic. It's the emergent crisis we're dealing with today. But I do think that in a way, COVID has also highlighted this very at-risk population of patients that we know do much poorer if they were infected with COVID. So let's don't lose sight of, of the fatty liver patients either while we're working through COVID. I think this patient population is even at greater risk because of the sedentary lifestyle that COVID forced us all to, to really kind of live with. So I'll, I'll end there. I agree with the guys there. But the one thing I was thinking of when you were saying the average age of 65, Stephen um, and Samir's and Naeem's um, study, the average age 
is 56. So I think unlike hepatitis C, where it's a baby boomer and the baby boomers get older, we are now seeing this, this the Nathal D population, the Nash population, has gone from the baby boomer population. It's now the baby boomer babies population. And the way we're rolling, it's going to be the baby boomers' grandchildren in the next 10 years. Now, we are not identifying this and stopping it quick enough to stop the younger generation dying before we do. So we will, sadly, see more and more of our grandchildren go before us unless we really wake up around the world and identify our risk populations. So not only will it be loss of life, it'll be cost. Putting yours and the figures that the guys have produced just together, that rolling backward age group really concerns me. It's quite frightening. Totally agree. My last thought is that we've heard expressed a couple of times by people on this podcast who believe they reflect the regulatory point of view and and frankly by the regulatory agencies that because this is a slow progressing disease that we need to be we need to pay even greater attention than we have historically to safety issues and not rush into treatment if in fact the numbers that we're talking about today are accurate and they see their boy they're produced more realistically than anything else we've seen so therefore I expect they're accurate Stephen's point is right coming out of this pandemic we could have one in ten Americans with F2 or F3 grade Nash and at that point a you need to make sure it doesn't get to cirrhosis which is what the agencies look at but B it affects a whole bunch of other health parameters these numbers should kick up the urgency to think about treatments and approvals. And if they don't, then we're just refusing to listen. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back on Wednesday, May 19th, to discuss escalation and de-escalation of NASH therapy at different points in disease progression and management. I hope you join us then. Our guests will be Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, and Stephen and Louise will be with me as well. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.